This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. So let's turn together to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6. We are just past the halfway point in our series through this letter of Paul, a series with this theme of power in weakness. Now we're going to read today 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 into chapter 7, verse 1. It'll be on the screen, but if you have brought a Bible with you, that would be awesome because then you can follow along during the message and be more greatly enriched than you would be otherwise. Let's listen to the Word of God together. Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. And one of the exciting things about studying Scripture is that God continually surprises you, and I'm just a few days ahead of you guys, and I find that so often I come to a text of Scripture assuming that I already know what it means. And then on deeper study and reflection and listening to the voice of the Spirit in the text turns out to be quite different than what I originally thought. I want to talk first of all about what this text is not about, what you probably assume it means, but what Paul is actually not saying. I don't think this is actually a text about separation from the world. That phrase being unequally yoked, if you've heard it at all, you've probably heard it in the context of a prohibition against dating and marrying non-Christians. This idea that we should not be in partnership in any way with non-Christians. Don't date non-Christians, don't marry non-Christians, don't go into business with non-Christians, don't have non-Christian friends. In other words, live in a Christian Ghetto. That's what a lot of us hear Paul saying by default as this very fundamentalist separation from the world. If you're a Christian, you should only eat with Christian friends, in Christian restaurants, with Christian food prepared by Christian chefs who've got their food from Christian farmers who have raised Christian plants and Christian animals. Total separation from the world. And it would be very strange if Paul was saying that because it would contradict a lot of things Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians. 
Of course, Paul only desires that we marry in the Lord, but he says, if you are married to an unbeliever, don't seek a divorce. Stay in that relationship. He talks about not the difficulties with eating food offered to idols, and he says, if you're in the house of a non-Christian friend and he offers you food, eat it without asking. If he says, oh, this was offered to idols, don't receive it. And Paul is assuming there that Christians have non-Christian friends that they eat meals with, and he's not forbidding those relationships. You know, this idea that Paul is talking about separation from the world in this passage would be very strange because it doesn't at all fit the context of this letter and where this passage is in 2 Corinthians. In fact, in this letter... The relationship of Christians with the world is not an issue at all. Not what Paul is talking about in this second letter to the Corinthians. And Paul has been going on on a completely different theme, appealing for the restoration of relationship with these Corinthians. Why on earth would Paul suddenly veer to the side and introduce this idea of not marrying non-Christians or being in partnership with them? That would give us whiplash, and it'd be very unlike Paul, because Paul's thought is always progressing logically. He's building an argument. He doesn't randomly have interjections that have nothing to do with a topic at hand. And in fact, a lot of scholars used to think that this passage wasn't even written by Paul, that someone later on inserted this from somewhere else, and we could just take it out of the letter and jump on smoothly to chapter 7, verse 2, and not even miss anything. I don't think that is the case. I think this does fit in with what Paul's saying in this letter and in this part of the letter. You notice if you look at the verse before this passage in 6.13, what we talked about last week, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to widen their hearts, to open their hearts to Paul. And the verse after this passage in 7 verse 2 says, make room in your hearts for me. So this passage is embedded in Paul's appeal for the Corinthians to open their hearts and have a restored relationship with their father in the faith. This is in the middle of a warm, personal appeal. And it would make no sense for Paul to suddenly jam in some demanding, legalistic requirement. If this passage means anything, it's about Paul trying to remove obstacles to a strained and broken relationship so that these Corinthians can be fully restored to the apostle who founded this church and fathered them in the faith. Think about it. Throughout this book, Paul has been dealing with people who have been causing problems within the church. I think we get a good clue from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is going to be on the screen here, Paul's first recorded letter to the Corinthians. And he says in that letter, I wrote to you in my letter, referring to an earlier letter to the Corinthians, not in the Bible, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Right? It's impossible to have total separation from the world. We're called not to be of this world, but to be in this world. 
But I am writing to you, he goes on, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business it is of mine? Is it of mine to judge people outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is all about dealing with unbelievers within the church. And Paul is calling for the community of faith to purify itself. The world is not ours to judge. That's God's job. The world is always going to be the world, and we should never be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. Totally to be expected. But we are responsible for our own community. We are responsible for the holiness of the family of God. And you know, there is a cottage industry of Christian leaders who are constantly stirring up fear and alarm and panic about the state of the world and the sins of the world and how the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I think it's a giant distraction from what's going on inside the world. The worldliness, the hypocrisy, the greed, the deceit, the abuse, the injustices, the craving for power among people who bear the name of Christian. And we would much rather, of course, we would much rather talk about sins of people out there than deal with their own hearts and our own community. And Paul is saying, guys, you must deal with this, and you must deal with these people within the community. This church is drifting away from the gospel. They're drifting away from the apostle who brought them the gospel. And Paul is saying, you need to deal with these people who are causing this. You need to cut off people who claim the name of Jesus and are actually agents of the evil one. In this case, false apostles, immoral, divisive people. And the shocking thing about this is that Paul calls them unbelievers, wickedness, darkness, Belial, that is, Satan, and worshipers of idols. Paul's upsetting the nice, comfortable social club of the church to name evil for what it is. He's saying, look guys, there's spiritual warfare going on. And wherever Jesus plants his church, and wherever the spirit is present, as it certainly is in Corinth, the evil one is always half a step behind, trying to divide, destroy, corrupt, and betray the cause of the gospel. Generally a more effective strategy for Satan than attacks from the outside. And Paul's saying, you can't be in kingdom partnership with people who do not love Jesus and are not serving his kingdom. I think that's what the image of being unequally yoked is about. The yoke, of course, is a wooden bar that would put two animals together in double harness 
and it's an image of common labor. It's about working together. And Christians and non-Christians cannot work together in the cause of the gospel because they're pooling in two different directions. And look, Paul has a wide and generous heart for differences within the church. He is constantly appealing for very diverse people to come together, put their differences aside, and gather around Jesus. The circle should be very large, but it does have definite boundaries. The circle has an edge to it, and there is a point when we have to say, you are in and you are not in. Paul asks this series of five rhetorical questions. What fellowship, what partnership do these things have in common? Righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, a believer and an unbeliever, the temple of God and idols. And the obvious answer to his rhetorical questions is, those two things have nothing in common. There can be no partnership, only warfare. And as Christians, we celebrate the fact that God has transferred us miraculously from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now, our sole undivided allegiance belongs to Jesus. And where Christ is concerned, there can be no compromise. But this should not be thought of as like a harsh, negative passage because Paul immediately moves on to celebrate the fact that the Corinthians and every family of Christians are the temple of the living God, the place where God is present, the place he inhabits. God's holy dwelling place on earth. And what Paul does again and again in his letters is to remind Christians who they are. He's not shrieking abuse at the Corinthians, trying to hammer them and take them down and demean them. He's appealing to them to live up to the grace of God that has been at work in their lives. I can't help but think of the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And when he's done praying, the Shekinah glory of God, this cloud of smoke, fills the temple as the evidence of God's presence in that building. The temple was a special place in Jerusalem where God was uniquely present. And it was thought of as the umbilical cord between heaven and earth, a touch point where God and humanity connected. And nowhere in the Old Testament does it describe the people of God, of Israel, as being the temple. But this is what happens in the New Testament with the arrival of Christ. We can say now that the church is the location of God's presence on earth. 
Where is the Spirit of God present in this world? He is present here among those who trust and follow the Lord Jesus. God lives here. Not just as a temporary guest. God abides among his people. And we are God's home. That is an unimaginably high honor for sinful people. And it brings with it an awesome responsibility. Paul is not just declaring, this is who you are. He's saying, now, live up to who you are. You are God's temple. This is true of you now. That is a gift of the grace of God. And now, because that's true, start living that out in your own lives and in your own community. And to back up what he's saying, Paul gives us a string of Old Testament texts, this collage that he's brought together from Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel and 2 Samuel, reminding the Corinthians that they are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. All these marvelous things that the Old Testament kings and saints and men and women who sought God and longed for are actually coming true now, before our eyes, in our community. God is at work fulfilling his promises. And these texts tell the story of Israel's return from exile. They'd been sent into exile in Babylon for disobeying God and pursuing idols instead of being faithful to him. And now God is summoning the people to come home, to come out of Babylon and return to the promised land to be God's people in God's place. And like all prophecy, it's not just a prediction. It is a summons to respond in faith and obedience and holiness to what God is doing in the world. And I want to show this slide to make it a little clearer from these texts what's going on here. <laughs> and Steve's going to bring that up on the screen here in a minute. This is the text with the different colored, the orange and the green. Yeah, keep on going past this. And I've divided up these texts into, into keep on going, into three sections um, to sort of show you the logical flow of what Paul is doing. Yeah, keep on going. It's the one with the orange and the green text. Yeah, there we go. So I've just colored this in different sections to show you this interplay between what God has promised to do and what God is calling us to do. The orange is what God says he's going to do. The green here is what he calls us to do. And notice that what God begins with is his gracious promise. God always begins. God always initiates. God is always the one who sets the stage. And it begins with a promise of sheer grace 
to very fallen and sinful people of what God plans to do. And God says, here's what's going to happen. Here is what I declare and what I have decided is going to, be, going to happen. I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to walk with you. Not as a stranger, but in deep relationship where I will be the God of my people and they will be my people. God is not just going to live among the people. He is going to live in the people as his home, as his habitation, as his dwelling place. And then notice that white connecting therefore, always a very important word in Paul, therefore, because God has promised this, because God has defined our future, now on the basis of that future promise of God, here is the response that the Holy Spirit is calling for. You know, theology always has moral implications. This is not just meant as a set of abstract ideas and interesting truths to stroke our beards to and ponder. God is calling us to act in living response to what he is doing in the world. And he's saying, because I'm going to be with you now, be who you are. God has already declared us as saints, as all of Paul's letters begin, as this letter has begun, as saints who are in Corinth, the holy people of God, as soon as you believe in Jesus, you are declared and made holy through the death of Christ. And now, in response to that, living that new name out in your life, time to leave the corruptions and the compromise and offer yourselves holy to God. Paul is drawing on this ritual language in the Old Testament where holiness is deeply connected to worship. It's about the priests purifying themselves so they can come before the presence of God and offer sacrifice. And holiness is about preparing ourselves to bear the awesome presence of the living God. Holiness is about preparing ourselves as a community to bear the awesome presence of the living God. It's really important to understand that holiness is not an end in itself. Holiness serves worship of God. And when holiness is not about worship and holiness is not pointed towards God, it becomes something that's crippling and burdensome and full of death. And then holiness becomes a mere negation. Holiness is just about saying no to stuff. No to stuff that sounds really fun and really enjoyable. And we think, I've got to be holy. I've got to deny myself. I've got to deplete myself. I've got to 
make these sacrifices to my own deprivation, and then it becomes something that's far from God. True holiness is born of a deep desire to behold the face of God. To be set apart for the presence of God. And God says to us, I want you all for myself. And we respond to God in love, saying, Lord, here is my heart, completely, utterly, fully, and without reservation. And then, there's this further promise from God, that last bit in the orange there. That when we act in this way, what follows from that is the welcome of God. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Holiness draws its life from the expectation of family welcome. It's not an end in itself. Draws its life from an expectation of God welcoming us home as his beloved sons and daughters. And there can be no genuine holiness without this awareness that we are adopted as the children of God. Adopted through Christ and born again by the Spirit of the living God. So that holiness is not something strange and inhuman and unnatural. Holiness has been made our nature by the Holy Spirit. Holiness is our natural element. And Paul seems to be drawing this language of sonship from 2, Corinthians, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, where there's this adoption formula where God says to David, you will be my son. It's a kingly title. And of course, it prophetically speaks to Jesus, the root of Jesse, the son of God, who is the true son and who is the true king, but... Now, this thing that was once limited just to the king through Jesus has been expanded to include the whole people of God. Where Jesus shares his sonship so that he can be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. That the same relationship that Jesus has with his father is now our right and privilege as the children of God. And this amazing Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled right now in our midst as we look around and we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God. And until we believe that about ourselves, we will never make any progress in holiness or desire for God or 
faithful obedience. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Ephesians 4. And what I realized staring at these verses is that that response in green in the center is sustained and made possible and draws strength from those promises in orange before and after. God never gives us a naked demand. It's always with the encouragement and the promise of grace. And of course, our response is required. The full experience of being a son and daughter of God is contingent, is conditional on us living holy lives, but it's not about us earning that by our holiness. The obedience of faith is necessary to receive God's promised gift. It's how we receive it. If you suddenly receive the news that a great uncle has died and he's left you a mansion back in your home country and a huge estate, you actually need to go there and sign the documents and collect the keys to take possession of it. And those things don't earn you the estate. It's simply a gift and a surprise, but it's how you actually receive and take possession of it. I think we can say that the obedience of faith is necessary to receive God's promised presence. If you don't respond in faith, if you don't obey, if you don't seek holiness, you will fall short of what God has promised you. If you want to remember and write down one sentence today, let me give it to you right now. Holiness is the believing response to the promise of God's presence. Holiness is the believing response to the promise of God's presence. Yeah, God has promised, I will be present. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I will be your Father. And here's how we respond in faith through being holy people. There's a bit of an odd chapter division in 2 Corinthians. Really, the end of this passage is chapter 7, verse 1, which I'll read to you again. Paul says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. If you are a Christian, God has spoken amazing things about your future. We experience a foretaste now, but there's so much more that God is holding out for us. And we're leaning forward together on tiptoe, stretching our hands out for the promised inheritance. And the full inheritance, of course, is God himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. 
And as a human being, you were created for communion with your maker. And you were designed by God for fellowship with him. And all human beings, many in very confused and twisted ways, we all long for the beatific vision of seeing the face of God, of being lost in his glory, completely forgetting ourselves and being entranced with the love that is at the center of all reality. And the ultimate good that we can imagine is knowing and being with God as our beloved Father. That is the hope. That is the promise. And that changes how we live now. You know, it's just human nature, common to all human beings, that what people believe about their future changes how they act now. If you believe this pandemic is going, on for, is going to go on for another five years, that will change how you live now. If you believe that Russia is going to bomb Tbilisi tomorrow, I guarantee that would change how you behave now. What you believe about the future always affects how you live now, and it's no different for Christians. Holiness is the evidence that we really believe and desire what God has promised. How do I know that I actually believe? How do I know that I actually have faith? Well, it's very easy. Are you growing in holiness? And our faith is not judged by our words, by how much we talk about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and heaven. Words are very cheap. We're judged by our actions. And we can turn ourselves on mute and turn other people on mute and silence the words and simply look at the choices that we are making. And the evidence of whether you really believe God's promises and you really desire them is whether or not you are pursuing holiness. And a purely passive faith that merely receives and accepts but does nothing more is no faith at all. It is dead faith. True faith is demonstrated by those heroes of Hebrews 11 who left everything behind on their pilgrimage to the heavenly city. Do I believe God's promises? Am I living in holiness? And the Spirit, through Paul, is calling us to action in response to God's promises. Let us purify ourselves. Action from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Total person. Body and spirit, offering ourselves up in devotion as living sacrifices for the pleasure of God.
not just me personally, although that's required, but the whole community, the whole family of God offering ourselves up as priests of the Lord, putting aside impure and unholy things. Greed, deceit, sexual immorality, injustice, malice, and envy, and clothing ourselves in holy garments so we can encounter God. Holiness is about worship. It's not an end in itself. And God has called each person here to serve in his royal priesthood. In holy fear and holy love, offering up the song of creation on our faces before the presence of God that surrounds us and fills us. Now we need to ask ourselves today, on our journey today, are we a people where God feels at home? Are we a people, are we a place where God feels welcome? Do we long to see the face of God together? And over the years, is our desire for God's presence and our desire for holiness, is it increasing or is it fading? At the beginning of this letter, Paul declared that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Yeah? And God is not like Pharaoh who demanded that the Israelites make bricks without straw. God does not demand holiness from us without giving us the grace to make it not just possible, but effective in our lives. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. God is at work. And he hasn't left the job to us. It's not our project. It's not our dream. It's not our vision. It's not our idea that we've invented and we're trying to add God to this. This is God's idea and God's dream and God's vision. And he sent Jesus to be the cornerstone of the temple to build this whole community around him And he has sent his spirit, the spirit of holiness, into our hearts, into this church, to be transformed by the power of God. We sang earlier that holiness is Christ in me. Holiness is Christ in me. Holiness is not your project or you're toiling upwards by your own strength, trying to make yourself worthy for God. Holiness is God declaring through Christ, you are worthy 
You are holy. You are my son. You are my daughter. And now by, your, by my spirit, I'm going to work those things out in your lives. So let's bow our heads and pray and ask God for his grace to, make, make, to be made powerful among us. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for these gracious and awesome promises that you have declared over us. And you've promised that your word does not return to you empty, but that it will fulfill the purpose for which you have sent him. And Lord, through the atoning death of Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, you have created us as your temple. As part of the worldwide people of God who are being built together as living stones for your holy habitation forever. Lord, in response to that awesome presence, help us to respond in obedient faith, to purify ourselves, to make ourselves ready for your dwelling. Do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray. All for your praise, your worship, and your adoration. In the great name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.